iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skide af alle de der podcaster, forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel. First though, England's preparation for their 1000th game didn't quite go to plan. At the time of recording, England are just a few hours away from taking to the field then for this momentous occasion. A game that was supposed to be full of nostalgia and celebration as England looked to book their spot at Euro 2020 against Montenegro. Hasn't quite gone to plan though after Gareth Southgate announced one of England's superstars Raheem Sterling had been removed from the matchday squad for one game. Sterling let his emotions boil over after Sunday's defeat to Liverpool and continued an ongoing fallout with Joe Gomez. Now the Times' very own Paul Joyce has been around the England squad over the last few days, joins us here right now on the Game podcast. Gareth Southgate has admitted, we should say, that this is just a one-game suspension and Sterling has stayed with the squad that will travel to Kosovo. Let's hear from Southgate then, who called an early press conference on Tuesday and said he wanted this to be the end of the matter. I love all of my players. We're like a family and all families have disagreements. And the most important thing for any family is that you communicate through those disagreements and you work through them. Um, so I don't expect um, as a manager to never have to deal with things that uh, that are either unexpected or are difficult. Um, that's part and parcel of the job and that's part and parcel of working with elite players. We, uh, as I say, uh, our focus is now to move forward. So Southgate says they are one family, but do footballers need to be a family to be winners? There are plenty of incidents where teammates haven't seen eye to eye, most notably the Spanish squad that won back-to-back European Championships and a World Cup. Paul, let me come to you then. This uh, fallout from uh, this situation with Gomez and uh, Sterling, it's unsavoury, it has to be said. It's not gone down particularly well, obviously, within the England camp, but... This is what happens in football, isn't it? I think to to an extent we've we've sort of heard a lot of sort of training ground bust up stories, you know, down the years. But I think where this one was different was, well, first of all, it, it didn't happen in training; it happened in a can in a canteen, and I think it got it, it got taken to a to a different level when it, it sort of became a physical incident with the with the mark that was sort of sustained by Joe Gomez. 
I think it's let, it left Gareth Southgate really in a position where he had to sort of come down quite hard on, on Raheem Sterling. Some people have the view that it's maybe not even hard enough. You know, that, that that's caused a lot of debate this week. But I think he did have to do something. I think he did have to say that that, that sort of behaviour isn't what he wants in his, his squad. And I think it is a different scenario to two players just becoming a bit sort of heated in, in a training ground. There's an incident, obviously, this took place, you know, um, some time after the game on Sunday. Looks like Raheem, obviously Raheem has been stewing on what happened at Anfield. So to an extent, there was, it wasn't just a heat of the moment, you know, flare up, you know, in training. But but having said all that, I don't think it will cause sort of lasting damage. I remember when um, early in Raheem's career, Roy, Roy Hodgson um, went very public on him not training one day he, before a game against Estonia he said that he said that he was too tired to train which caused a lot of consternation at the time as well and it felt like he'd hung out Raheem to dry a little bit that by making a, a private conversation between the, a player and the manager public to the press at that time and I remember there was a similar sort of reaction to there is now in a way in that Raheem was unhappy with that but he, he's got on with his England career and I think he's been very fortunate that Joe Gomez has acted like he has accepted the apology. Raheem's mentor has said to him, you know, so you think you're the big man, but arguably Joe Gomez has proved he's the bigger man in all this. I suppose some people, Paul, will question whether or not Southgate was right to deal with this situation in the way that he has done. Do you feel that he would have dropped Sterling, one of England's best players, if this was a crucial game, let's say, in terms of against one of the better sides in the world? Yeah, this was put to him at the press conference last night. Tom was at that as well and at, at, uh, at England's hotel. And he, he just answered that by saying it's hy- hypothetical. You know, how, how can I answer that question? I, I get what everybody's saying, you know, if it's... Germany in a World Cup semi-final. Listen, England won't be the same team without Raheem Sterling. He scored 10 goals in 10 matches and he's the best player that England have at the moment. So I get where people say Southgate wouldn't have done the same if it was a World Cup semi-final, but we are dealing in a, in a hypothetical there. So it is, mm. it is very difficult to come out and criticise him in this instance. He's done what he thinks is, what he thinks is right. He's you know, as for the, the, the sort of insinuation that it should have been kept in-house, I'm not sure we should be asking the FA to cover things up. I'm not sure that's a route that we want to go down. So I think the story was, was out in the media by that time. I think it's very difficult, as we've seen with England in the past, for, for stuff to, to stay quiet. And, and Gareth alluded to that at the impromptu press conference on Tuesday and said that the, the sort of scrutiny and interest in England, he feels, is on the England team is more than on any other team in any other sport in the world, which was quite a sort of admission. And I think it's been a very challenging time for the guy Southgate. You know, he's had the racism storm. He's had the um, James Madison casino incident. Mm. He's had Jaden Sancho problems at Borussia Dortmund. He's now had, had this situation. Two games ago, England got beat by Czechoslovakia, very poor performance. So he's got enough to contend with in sort of trying to solve problems on the pitch without all these these headaches off the pitch constantly veering. So I think we've got to sort of cut him a little bit of slack 
he's made his decision. He's said a line, drawn in under it. Raheem will stay in the leadership group. He'll be back in the team against Kosovo on, on Sunday. And, you know, England move forward from there. Paul, thank you. Really appreciate you speaking no to us. Well, the message from the England camp, from the players, is that this is over with. The matter has been dealt with. And for a long time, Tom, we've been led to believe that this England squad that's been assembled by Gareth Southgate is one of unity. Um, when we hear stories like this, obviously it pricks your ears a little bit more, doesn't it? Um, does a football team need to be a family of winners? To an extent. I mean, you've got, when you look back at Andy Cole and Teddy Sheringham's relationship, they, they couldn't stand each other, but they were a brilliant strike partnership. But I think more often than not, you do need to have a, a spirit and unity, which does come from that kind of family bond. And we, we saw that with England um, last summer in Russia, whereas... You know, back in the Ericsson era, the Capello and McLaren, that was when the cliques were there, the mm. Manchester United, the Arsenal, the Liverpool uh, cliques in the squad. And and it was a golden generation, which we all know didn't live up to expectation. I think with, with this situation, uh, Gomez and Sterling, the thing I sort of take issue with is that many people have said it's, you know, a bust-up that ha- happens all the time at clubs. But I get that, and I think... Um, I remember uh, doing an interview with John Obi McKell and he was talking about Chelsea where they're going at half time and John Terry would would go crazy and and those sorts of that would be that kind of bust up happening there but but that is for almost the good of the team whereas this was in danger of dividing the England squad. Um, I think if it wasn't, I think Joe Gomez needs to take a lot of credit from what happened here because if if it wasn't for him, I think I think there would be a greater division. Whereas it's it's instantly they're saying completely mended. Gregor, what do you make of it? Then you spent time in a dressing room. This obviously happens all the time. Admittedly, as Paul pointed out, this wasn't in the dressing room. This yeah. is away from that. That is an important sort of line to be drawn. I, I think. Tom's right to an extent. You know, if it, when it happens in the changing room, sort of a half time or after a game or on the training ground directly, you know, that's the, the sort of immediacy of the emotion of of playing football and participating that you can kind of almost sort of excuse it. This is a day after, you know, Ryan Sterling's clearly still seething, um, and and it's you know it's not it's not in the football sort of immediate football environment. It's in a social space in the canteen, but at the same time, I kind of also think that these things are so commonplace that it really will have very very little effect on the team. I think I think you know the, these things happen, but when when they happen, it, that is the main difference. The fact that it was in a a social space rather than the football environment, but it's so commonplace that I, I really don't think. It has much effect on the team, and the the idea of the kind of cliques. Mm, I don't. Ask I don't think. You know, there's, if you look back at in previous England squads when there was a heavy sort of Manchester United influence, or <clears throat> even just now, there's suddenly there's a big Chelsea sort of influx of of players. There's possibly a risk of it then, but also it depends on who the character is. And we were talking before, and Ryan Sterling's status is is one thing to take in into account. He's Along with Harry Kane, probably the most sort of important sort of figure in the England squad. Joe Gomez, not had as many caps, nowhere near, and he's kind of not not guaranteed a starting bear, things like that. So that's something to that probably we play on Gomez's mind. He's said to have been quite shaken by this, and he's thinking, I'm, 
I've just kind of been in a scuffle with probably England's best player. <laughs> so, you know, but I think I think really you've got to take into account their their personalities as well. And you know, it's out, it's been deemed out of character for Ryan Sterling. Gomez is quite a kind of reserved character, and there's not you know there's only a couple of Liverpool players and and sorry, there's two two Manchester City players, three Liverpool players. Henderson is a is a leader, and he he was involved in sort of mm-hmm. separating them. I really doubt that's going to have any sort of lasting effect. If it's if it's something where, you know, blood bad blood sort of festers, um, and there's no real you know, if they're made to shake hands and they kind of and and get on grudgingly, it doesn't sound like that's been the case. So mm-hmm. I think it won't have any lasting effect on the team at all. Yeah, I think any danger of, of a divide was was really stopped as well by Jordan Henderson because in the game on Sunday at Anfield, he actually got into a bit of a, a dispute and an argy-bargy with uh, Raheem Sterling and then he wasn't actually at the training camp when the when Sterling and Gomez had the, the fracas. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but... Henderson played played the role as intermediary. Mm. He got on the phone to to both players and got them got them together. Um, so I think he has to take huge credit as well. So if England win and win in some style against Montenegro, is that going to give Southgate a headache come the next game against Kosovo, Gregor? I don't think so. I mean, I think Raheem Sterling, as I've said, is England's best player. Harry Kane is obviously the captain and and the goal scorer, but Sterling is the chief creator. He's a, he's he's becoming a kind of worldwide superstar, not just an England superstar, you know. Um he's gonna play. He's gonna play if he's if if South you know, I think Southgate has done this you know, people have spoken about if this has been too harsh. And some people think it should have been it's been an interesting reaction actually from the public. I think mixed, a mixed reaction. It has been, yeah, it's been quite surprising. I think part of that is down to the fact that you don't really see how often this kind of thing happens. Honestly, I would say like every few weeks in training there would be a some kind of altercation. And I know it's, I've said it already. It's not in training. It's slightly different. And as Tom said, it, sometimes it's to the benefit of the team if it's kind of if it's to iron out a problem or mm-hmm. or kind of g people up or whatever. But it's not always. You know, I've seen some pretty serious uh, scraps in training and stuff. And it's not you know that can pose a pose a problem. But I think. This isn't this a wasn't very serious, and and b I think that this kind of seems out of character so much for the two players that I think that really it's not going to be a big issue for England. So do you think, lastly on this, then the punishment that has been given out to Raheem Sterling is correct from a player's perspective? I understand why you know a lot of players came out. You saw a lot of players come out and say this should have been kept in house. But as Paul said, I think it would have been very hard to do that. Uh, so I think they they almost tried to get ahead of the story, and I can understand why Southgate, because it, it, as Tom said, it's been so important the sort of unity within England's ranks. I think again going back to where the players come from, it, they're so so you know widely spread, and a lot of them have played through age groups together, and has been certainly that's been a big an important factor in England's sort of success recently. So I think. Um, I think kind of maintaining, making sure that that's not threatened is important. So, and as we said, they're playing Montenegro. You can afford to drop them. It sends out a, a message. As Southgate has alluded to, you might have the hump a little bit, but everyone will get past it. And I'm sure 
I think it kind of towed the right line, really. Also, where Southgate's been a success has been being open and transparent and with the media. So to suddenly pull down the shutters on 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 this situation possibly wouldn't have worked well for him. The train is now approaching junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So as we mentioned, England's game versus Montenegro is the 1,000th of their history. And I thought, why not have a little quiz <laughs> with Gregor and Tom about this? And I'm going to, you know, hopefully come up with some tricky ones for you. So I'm going to start with um, the magic number of 1,000. So it's the 1,000th game for England, but who was the 1,000th player I, I actually know this you one do. because Very I interviewed him <gasps> Very this good. week. Do you know why I spoke to him earlier on this Ah, time? Neil Webb. Neil, Neil Webb. Webb. Um, that wasn't a setup. No, no, no <laughs> it wasn't at all, yeah. No, Neil Webb. Um, Nottingham Forest, Man yes. United, Neil Webb. And he played, the game was away to West Germany mm-hmm. in uh, 87, 87. And Bobby Robson brought him on for the final 20 minutes. And I think they lost that they game. They did, yeah. And the very next game was an 8-0 thrashing of Turkey, which he started and he scored in. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so Neil Webb, indeed, was the 1,000th player to play for England. And I'm, I'm That's 1-0 right Tom, by one the way. 1-0 Tom, very well. <laughs> I'm led to believe also that isn't it, it was, at one stage, a trivial pursuit question. Yes, yeah, exactly. He, um, he, was, playing, he was playing trivial pursuit a few years ago. And uh, it came up, and it was the. I don't think he was very good at Trivial Pursuit, but that was um, that was the one that he could get. <laughs> yeah, it's not bad if you can go. That's me. I know this one. Yes. Doesn't <laughs> um, okay, my next question is: What is the most common surname to have played for England? Smith. Gregor, you're very slow on the uptake. Oh, do you know, I would have said Smith. Smith is okay. Well, go for the next best then. What do you think? Good God. It's <laughs> a tricky one, isn't it? Um, well, Smith, there are 20 players to have played for England. Adams? Smith. Adam? Adams? Adams? No, Adams doesn't feature. Mm. There's quite a difference between Smith and to the next best, which has shared nine players. Robson? No. Do you know it's Johnson and Brown? Oh, Johnson and Brown. Ah. Indeed. I'm not very good at this. No, I, I mean, it's maybe a bit unfair. I think so, yeah. <laughs> You're not English. But, um, let's, let's carry on. There's some plenty more for us to, to go out with. I like this one as well. There are two grounds that England have played on most without losing. 
One is Solitude in Belfast. What is the other? And I'll give you a clue. It is in England. So they've never lost at this ground in England. Is it St Mary's? No. Villa Park? No. We're not doing ourselves any justice. So you can head up to the north west. You can head up to the north west. Stadium of Light. West. Yeah, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Old Trafford? No. Eight games have been played in Belfast and their record was 1-6, drawn two, lost none. This other ground, 1-7, drawn one, Anfield. <sighs> there you go. Okay. Yeah, we're doing well here, aren't we? Mm. <clears throat> Shall I give you one more? Just one more. I'm, I'm getting the nod from producer Joe. So England have only been playing at Wembley since 1924. Between 1924 and 1951, there was only one opposition that they would have faced. Gregor, I'm going to come to you on this one. <laughs> was it Scotland? It was Scotland, <laughs> was it? indeed. Okay, so we'll give you a point for that. But my next question to that then is, who was the next country that they faced at Wembley, having played Scotland for so long? Wales? No. I can tell you it's a South American team. Brazil? No. <laughs> We're just going to go through them. Argentina? You could li- Argentina, <laughs> yes. Oh, you're on fire all of a sudden. Uh, indeed, the first non-Scottish team to face England were Argentina in May 1951, and it was a 2-1 win as well. And now, during the 1,000 games, England have used many different kits. And in today's times, Henry Winter has paid tribute to a handful of them. He's picked out his 10 most iconic kits. So uh, get yourself a copy of The Times or go online and have a look at that. But Scott, I was thinking about what is your most memorable and iconic kit? Oh, Gregor, you must be loving this segment. Um, Plenty of reasons for you to come up with your favourite England kit, Gregor. But let's start with you, Tom. Have you got an iconic one that you can remember? Uh, I think it's got to be the 96 kit i think it was mm. definitely the most didn't like that one e- no i can imagine <laughs> i can see why <laughs> i think it was definitely the most uh aesthetically pleasing one uh and i'm gonna go the other side as well 2004 that was awful the red splodge down the arm it was oh ugh. yes that was probably the memory of the fire. tournament as well which mm. doesn't help no I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually quite like the the 1990 Italian 90 oh. World Cup kit, the Umbro one, because um, the first World Cup I really remember. I was probably like five or six. I'd already cried my eyes out behind the sofa when Scotland oh, lost to Brazil. Yeah. Pavarotti singing away in the background, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you know, obviously, you kind of adopted England after that, and uh, remember all the kind of famous moments: Gaza crying his eyes out and. Lineker gesturing yeah, so towards really the bench. It's all for the wrong reasons. Yeah. This one up but again. also another thing is, I, I remember Des Walker was a kind of iconic figure in that team and he's someone who I played alongside when I started oh. at Nottingham Forest. Nice. And uh, I remember in his house he has a, a gold gold disc of the World in Motion song with a picture of him underneath in that <laughs> strip in <laughs> one of some Italian stadium. and So that always stuck in my memory as well. Nice. Oh, there's plenty. I mean, obviously the 1966 England mm-hmm. team, that kit, the, the red, beautiful red it was. How can you forget that? I'm, I've got a slightly controversial one. It was an admiral kit. It was a V-neck thing. It has sort of had blue and red and at the top. It was sort of slightly striped to the top. And I, I think that just from an 80s perspective. Oh, is this the 82, the blue and yes, the red? I love that. that, that was, that's, that's my number two. Yeah, Whatever happened to admiral? I think they're coming back, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the king of the retro kits, aren't they? I know, but yeah. Good kits. Check out the times for Henry Winter's most iconic England kits. 
Oh, enough about England, Gregor. I'm sure you'd like to move <laughs> no, we on. Can keep talking about England because <laughs> this is going to be better. It's not going to get better. much better for you, is it? Because we're going to focus now on Scotland. And the assistant head coach Alex Dyer says the latest four call-offs from the Scotland squad are all genuinely injured. Andy Robertson, Ryan Fraser, Scott McTominay and Liam Cooper have all joined Arsenal's Kieran Tierney in pulling out of the latest squad to take on Cyprus on Saturday. This is what Dyer had to say. He said, if a player is injured, we can't do anything about it. All the ones that have pulled out this time are genuinely injured. It's not like they wanted to be pulled out or didn't want to come. From a Euro group qualifying perspective, Scotland are out of it. They can't qualify from this group. So do you genuinely believe these players are all injured, Gregor? Well, I don't think it takes Inspector Taggart to say to, to notice that they're uh, they all play in England. And they're all kind of some of the the bigger, more sort of established players um in the squad. So no, I'm sorry, I don't really believe it. But at the same time, I have some sympathy. I mean, you look at Andy Robertson and how many games he's going to have coming up. Um, McTominay has had an injury problem. But if you were to ask me if the qualifier in March was happening this week, if they would be in the squad, I think the answer is yes. Mm. So I, I do have some sympathy. I mean, the thing is, these are dead rubbers, but at the same time, there are last two games before the game in March, the, the, uh, the playoff game in March, which is obviously going to be so important. It's like a kind of golden ticket that's just been delivered to us despite us being awful. Um, so, and this is you know, all down to the Nations League. Which yes, yes. So, I mean, it'd be great to to try and field your your best team now and and sort of see see what that is. But we've not had that opportunity. I think Steve Clark's fielded ten strikers since he's been in the job, and it's not been long. Mm-hmm. Uh, and defensively, we're an absolute mess. I've got we've got an Aberdeen defensive pairing. Uh, looking likely to to play on Saturday, so and lots of injuries there. Um, so yeah, it's not ideal, but I would imagine when when March comes around, all these players will be declaring themselves fit, and and most of them, I'd say, Liam Cooper aside, would will be in the starting eleven. When and you've mentioned that the run of form that Scotland are on, um, do you think it, it's hard for Steve Clark to get players? to want to be a part of the Scotland squad right now? I think in one sense, yeah, because we're really bad. Do <laughs> We need to put it like that, that starkly. We are mm. bad. And we've got no chance of qualifying. That's been the case really since since we were hammered by Russia. Um, but that will all change when, when, when March comes round. And, you know, we've, we've spoken about this before in the last in the last international breaks that, you know, the crowds have been down People have been pulling out left, right and centre. But when March comes around, I think it'll be a sellout at Hamden and we'll have all these players declaring themselves fit and we'll need them um, because it's a, an opportunity that's kind of... It's an incredible opportunity and we, one we don't really deserve. Mm. I suppose Tom uh, and, and Gregor's already alluded to it. It's a little bit suspicious about some of these players that have called off injured. Would you then, for not be surprised if we saw all of them participating when the uh, domestic matters resume? Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. Um, I think that that's the issue, is it's the club, club v country thing, and, yeah. and you get a lot of... I don't actually think it matters if it, if you're as uh, small as Scotland, but, you know, the... the, the 
choose your words carefully. Yes, very carefully. <laughs> if you're Scotland or, or France or, you know, a, a World Cup, the World Cup winner, um, it doesn't matter. I think you're still going to get pressure from from club level because they're the ones who pay the wages. And actually, when I did that interview with Neil Webb in the, in the week, he remembered when he went to Man United um, and in 90, Graham Taylor took over as England manager and he got called up to the squad and he was in the physio room, sat, sat with his parents at Man United and the physio walks in and he says, uh, you got a calf strain? He said, no, I haven't. I'm fine. He said, yes, you have. See you on Monday. And he went back, found a message from Graham Taylor on his aunt's phone saying, Fergie's called me up and he's pulled you out of the squad because you're injured. And then he speaks to, to uh, Webb calls up Fergie and he says, um, you know, this is, Webb calls up Taylor and he says, um, as far as I'm concerned, you'll be there on Sunday. So suddenly you're in that dilemma. You've got a New England manager in Graham Taylor. You've got the man who is very powerful at Man United, the most powerful man at Man United, who's saying, I want you back here. I don't want you playing for England. And you're in a dilemma. He ended up staying, by the way. (laughs) Well, I mean, you could say someone like Kieran Tierney, who's come back from a long-term injury. He's played a few games, um, and Arsenal have essentially asked Scotland to withdraw him because he's still kind of maybe in the final throes of recovery of a from a hip injury. So that is one such that just shows how the the kind of balance and power has shifted dramatically. And the same with Andy Robertson. You know, I, I'm sure Klopp's had a, a conversation with Steve Clark saying, "Look, he's got a ridiculous number of games coming up." He needs a rest now, or he might not be fit for March. So there is some truth in that, mm. but at the same time, you know, it's kind of it's been a bit of a recurring theme, I think, with Scotland. So um, we'll see what we'll see what comes around in March. And we saw the fairly public fallout between Frank Lampard and Didier Deschamps, didn't we, over N'Golo Kante, where Lampard said he's too injured to play. He went, played, and got injured, more injured because he was already injured. Came back and couldn't play for Chelsea, and um, and they're the ones who pay his wages. Phil Neville's England side finished their year with a win on Tuesday night. The Lionesses wrapped up 2019 with a 3-2 victory against the Czech Republic. Neville admitted his side should be beating the Czech Republic by more after they needed Leah Williamson's late goal for the win. The Times' Molly Hudson was in the Czech Republic on Tuesday and joins us now. Uh, Molly, a year that started out with so much optimism has been full of highs and lows, hasn't it? It has. I think it's been... A learning curve for Phil Neville. I think there was probably a huge amount of positives going into the start of this year, and then actually England probably sort of excelled expectations to to win the She Believes Cup. And yes, that was only a friendly tournament, but it was against the likes of the US and Japan that you see as really strong contenders for the World Cup. So it was almost like the perfect dress rehearsal. Um, and then we went to the World Cup, and there were always things what could be improved upon but England were winning games they were finding a way when you had Ellen White a striker that was in such devastating form it it didn't really matter the fact that we at times looked really vulnerable defensively it didn't matter because Ellen White was simply scoring more than we were conceding Mm. Um, and then obviously we went out to the US and even that I don't think many people were surprised about because of the history in the women's game that the US have they were expected to win the tournament and 
they're still the best team in the world. So I think even then there was no panic. It was just right. We got close. We got unlucky, particularly with the the penalty miss um, and some a couple of really close VAR calls. And then we came back and starting off from the third place playoff where Neville said it's a bit of a nonsense game. It wasn't the best tone to set. And kind of since then, it's just all gone a bit downhill. I think it's been hard for the players. I think they almost had so much expectation and so much hype that they had never really experienced before. Probably due to the fact, as we just said about the She Believes Cup, they, they won that tournament and it made people think, actually, we can be the best team in the world. And Neville said that that was always the aim. They fell short, but then they've just gone backwards. They the, the defensive errors are more prevalent than they were before. They're coming against opposition that you expect to be comfortably beating. You take the Czech Republic and they're a part-time team. Arsenal beat Slavia Prague 13-2 on aggregate in the Champions League. The player, the the national team players didn't ha- even have names on their shirts. They're still part-time. So we, yes, we won 3-2, but there's a whole host of problems that are going to follow us into the new year now. And it was a sort of laboured win as well. It wasn't the most convincing, as you rightly pointed out. Yeah, even, even Leah Williamson's goal was like a deflected low shot. She's a centre-back. It was like, you know, that was the only way it felt we was going to score. Um, but I think the positives are we've got the win and you just have to hope that England could put this year behind them and almost reset. You know, Phil talked about the need to reset and he'd actually said to the players before this game that actually we aren't the best in the world anymore. We're not even close at the moment. And they need to get back to that. And, you know, the She Believes Cup in February, March, it provides a good platform to really test yourself and see how they can rebuild and reset because, again, you're going to be playing the best teams in the world. And if they play like they did against the Czech Republic, they're going to get absolutely hammered. And that's what I was actually going to ask you about. Have the results then over the course of this year shown that England actually are not quite up there yet where they want to be? I think at times they've looked like they're almost there. Um, So Neville's favourite analogy is climbing the mountain and the summit of the mountain was winning the World Cup. We got so close and they climbed it and climbed it and then they just slid right down the bottom. And it's like we have literally got right to the bottom of the mountain again. They're not even where they were at the start of the year. So I think... It's difficult because we've improved slowly, given the fact that we're now we have a professional league, which gives us a massive advantage over a lot of nations. But everyone else is improving as well. I mean, to be fair to the Czech Republic in that first half, they played some really good football. We were we were bad, but they were also very good. And the difference in the second half was that they were tiring. They're they're part time. They they haven't got the fitness we've got. Mm. Um, so I think we have to improve now at the same rate everyone else is improving and it's finding it's actually identifying and, and admitting that we aren't performing well which Neville has belatedly done um, in this last camp and hopefully that can now push them on to really reevaluate the the positives that we have because we have some incredible world-class players and really utilizing them as we did at the start of the year talking of positives what positives can we take then from this year going forward presumably obviously the, the the record-breaking crowd at Wembley is a massive positive to take forward. But in general, going forward for England and under Phil Neville, what has to be done to improve England? It's The, the biggest thing is defence. We we need to find a 
a four, whether that's a four or even if we go three at the back, we need to find a formation that works for us, that utilises the best of our players. Lucy Bronze, our best player, one of the best players in the world, has actually looked kind of vulnerable defensively because naturally she's quite attacking and we haven't really had the players that have understood that and and got in behind her to help her out when she has gone forward. Um, So I think probably of this year what we've learned is that we can criticise women's football now. Mm -hmm. We can say, actually, this isn't good enough, you have to do better. And enough people care for that to be the case, that those 77,000 at Wembley, they weren't happy, they didn't leave happy just because there were 77,000. They wanted more, they wanted just to win the game. And people care now, and it's a professional sport. And that is the biggest thing you have to take away. You know, maybe that's been a disadvantage for the players at times, to have to get used to that, to get used to the criticism, to get used to the spotlight. But actually, that's something that isn't going to go away. It's only going to get bigger. So it's probably been a, a big learning curve for them in that respect as well. Just lastly, I think it's what about three months until February when the squad regroups. Is Phil Neville still the right man, person to lead England? I think he has to now be given time because we got that win against the Czech Republic. I think if we would have lost that game, I'm not so sure he would have been given that time. He he talked about the support he got from the FA, but ultimately you can't be losing to a part-time side and beyond. It, you know, it wasn't a one-off. It was the same problems that we've identified again and again. But now I think he'll have the chance over this break to reset, um, to see how England actually do against these big nations again. And then... The problem now is that it's so close to, to Tokyo 2020. The She Believes Cup finishes in March and then you've got such a small turnaround to the Olympics. The long list has already been submitted and suddenly you're thinking if the She Believes Cup doesn't go well and the FA then think, oh, maybe maybe we shouldn't go with Neville or maybe we should have changed it, I think it's going to be too late. Mm. I think now Neville will stay with the team until at least after the Olympics and, and probably to the end of his contract, which is at the end of the home Euro 2021. Away from the international scene then, and before we wrap things up, Chelsea's fine list has been leaked. Um, Frank Lampard has signed this sheet of paper which lists all the fines that can be incurred by the Chelsea players. They're doing quite well in the league right now as well with six wins on the bounce. And maybe it has something to do with these uh, 12 rules. A whole raft of different reasons as to why they can be fined. It includes a £20,000 fine for being late to the start of training. Should a phone ring during meetings or a team meal, well, you'll owe £1,000. And also those wearing the wrong attire will also be fined £1,000. Quite a staggering amount of money. Uh, Gregor, tell us a little bit about when you were playing and and is is this the norm? These sort of fines that we're hearing. Yeah, maybe not those figures <laughs> in my uh, my career, but um, yeah, they're all fairly recognisable. There's maybe a few omissions, though. You know, oh, like some of them are not that savoury. I mean, there's things like flip flops in the showers. Yes. Then there's also one for that was often for urinating in the showers. <laughs> Presumably, you're not supposed to. No, no, I, mean, I was never fined <laughs> for checking. this. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, but yeah, it always always seems to be the way that with fines. The players would start off so strict, you know. They would the opening few weeks of the season. You'd be jumping on anyone who was like ten seconds late for something, whatever, just to build up the kitty. And then it sort of it waned a little bit through the season. And then when you get towards December, 
and everything would double because everyone wanted the, the kitty for the Christmas do topping up, you know. So, mm-hmm. um, but no, they were all very recognisable. Yeah, uh, if a little more uh, steep than what I was used to. <laughs> it's interesting, and we, uh, this is where a lot of the money goes on, isn't it? It is for a team night out. Absolutely. <laughs> and sometimes then after that you a holiday at the end of the season I'm not sure that's the case anymore often clubs would kind of yeah. pay for that themselves but that used to be yeah used to be for a, a good kitty for the for the Christmas do which was often a weekend away somewhere uh-huh. um, you could have a round the world tour with the Chelsea, <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> the Chelsea one yeah no they'll be charting a yacht or something <laughs> um, what yeah. kind of fines did you have to pay out then because I'm not I'm not believing that this is you know Greg or the Saint. No. There must have been moments. Yeah, there was always find. the lateness is the one really. I mean, especially if you were in a car school, if you were kind of you maybe three people travelling in together. If one was late, then you're all late. Mm. But you know, you'd have to kind of that was a kind of that was a little club in itself. Um, and well, how much things. would it be? How much would that be for being late back when you? Well, were it there? depends. Managers sometimes. I remember Gary Megson used to marry the the fine with whatever your earnings were, so it'd be like 10% of your, of your weekly sense. wage for something or a full week's wage for something, and they were strict. But other times, you'd have to kind of sign it off with the players before the start of the season, so everyone would agree on what the the fines were, and you'd agree on who the fine master was as well. There was one, always one, one guy who was like, if you wanted some, you, he'd, be, he'd be the man you grasped to. If someone was late, you'd go and find the fine master and say, by the way, he was he was <laughs> late, yeah. So... um yeah, it could be quite uh, quite underhand. <laughs> often could. people were often they would like unsilence your phone and then try and ring you discreetly yeah. and then go, whoa, 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 you got that's a thousand pounds. <laughs> Maybe not at Chesterfield. But. Wow. <laughs> but they, so there would be a lot of underhand tactics. Yes, going on. especially before Christmas and the run up to Christmas when it was double because it was doubled in December. Oh. Double bubble. But do you think, um, bear in mind what's happening with Chelsea, the run that they're on, these sort of rules do actually help to instill discipline? I think I think they're important. I do think they're important. I think, you know, I don't think this would be particularly different to his predecessors. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, most people would have be pretty strict fines for lateness. But it's the way they're policed and often, it's often the squad have to police it themselves. The players do. So it sounds bad if you're saying, yeah, you're grassing your teammate up. But actually, it's it's policing discipline within the squad. And so you often find that when players do that, it's not it's not a sign of sort of underhand tactics. It's actually a sign of kind of squad unity and players willing to step up and sort of call people out for for essentially slightly disrespecting the rules or the rest of your teammates. Or as I think Lampard has alluded to, it's every morning there's a whole host of staff turn up to to Cobham to mow the lawns, to <laughs> cook them their breakfast, things like that. If you're late, you're sort of it's a bit of a disrespectful act towards them as well so I've, in my experience when the finalists are strictly adhered to that's usually a good sign mm. I think it's fascinating because in, in any other sort of work in any sort of other employment there is no no real fines that, that happen if you're late into work Tom or if you're late for a meeting you might you know get spoken to but you never get these sorts of figures or any even in, at Chesterfield whichever they were what 100 quid or whatever yeah. it was yeah. you'd never have that so it must help to instill some sort of camaraderie and, and discipline within the squad. I think that's what it is. It's the symbolism from from Lampard. It's the symbolism of putting these up and saying, 
I'm all about discipline, manners, behaving in the right way. And I'm sure also as well, um, Jody Morris is probably a big part of this as well because I, I think he's, it's not ne- it's not quite, uh, it'd be a bit lazy to say good cop, bad cop, but mm-hmm. I think he's a, he's a big part of that, the success of that side. And, and I think he's the old school element. So um, I think maybe he's the debt collector. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is it for now. Many thanks to our guests today, Tom Roddy, Molly Hudson and Paul Joyce. Remember, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online on on your smartphone or tablet. It is just a pound a week for an eight-week trial. Search The Times subscription for more information. Have a good weekend and we'll be back on Monday. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Mogentarder. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider træt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.